morning, everybody. Rise and shine for true crime comedy time. My name is Matt. I am your host and informed comedic narrator of human behavior. I'm Matt, too, but I want to go by Alex now. What? Why? The X makes it sound cool. All right, fine. Whatever. I don't care. I never say your name anyway. But I guess, yeah, you can be my country singer alter ego, Alex Matthews. Yeah. I hope you're all in a good mood. Hope you're all having a swell day. And I hope you are ready to laugh. We have an insane story to tell you today. By the end of this, you're going to walk away saying, one, how the hell have I never heard this before? And two, wait a minute, we, we are in West Virginia? I could lie to you all and say this happens in Kentucky and the Carolinas and also in the 40s or some shit like that, somewhere in that area. But this is actually happening in Oregon, California, and Washington, and only like 11 years ago. Before we get into it today, just a quick reminder, still moving forward soon with the name change. You still won't have to do anything, and I'll notify you all via the Facebook page when everything's ready to go, so you can keep a lookout for that. Also, if you haven't yet and feel like doing me a favor, five stars on whatever thing you like me on. It really does help grow the show and help me reach new listeners. I don't have... Any other updates currently that I can think of at the moment? Let's see. Um, I made more pumpkin spice cupcakes for a friend's birthday. Ate none of them. Made a separate cake for myself. Ate all of it. Um, yeah, no new updates. Pretty standard October so far. All right, let's get into this. We got a lot to do. I came across this case earlier this week completely by chance. I was talking to my brother, and it... We played a little game thing, and that's how I found this case. And it has taken up literally all of my free time. I'm going to tell you all right now, buckle the fuck up. This is a three-state, four-person, ten-day killing spree by two of the grossest inhabitants of the Pacific Northwest I've ever heard of. Not quite as high on the gross scale as Gary Ridgway or Randall Woodfield in terms of what they did, but it's kind of the reasoning behind what they did that elevates it up a few notches. It puts a lot of extra stank on it, and this is stanky enough as it is. Gary Ridgway, by the way, if you don't know, the Green River Killer. Randall Woodfield, he was the I-5 killer. I would also like to remind everyone, current and maybe new listeners, that this is a comedy show. Just because it's true crime doesn't mean it can't also be funny. It's also 100% not what you're thinking if you're a new listener. Yeah, we do it weird over here. Pretty straightforward case this week. Pretty straightforward story. In fact, there's not even a trial at the end of this. So we're just going to talk about it from the beginning to the end. No town reviews this week, but I would love to know how many of you that works for out there. I have a lot of fun reading those. We have quite a bit to cover today, and the setting and context will reveal itself as we move along, so I don't think there's a huge need for too much setup. This is going to be happening mainly around Springfield, Oregon, Everett, Washington, and just a short little pit stop in Eureka, California. This part of the Pacific Northwest also happens to look exactly how I thought it did before I looked at it. Forests and mountainous horizons, winding roads, small towns made of old brick and if any, that's extremely shitty Mexican food everywhere. I'm not going to Oregon for burritos, no. Especially not where we live. I did read a lot of reviews on Off Mic just for myself. Not a whole lot of crime in any of these cities. 
Springfield, though, has a ton of Simpsons murals. Yeah, this is that one. This is where Bart and Milhouse and Lisa all go Hi, do Karama. whatever they do in that episode. But there's also a shitload of homeless people and drug addicts. So you get groundskeeper Willie and Mayor uh, Quimby murals all over town, but right next to them is a homeless crack addict asking you for a five spot. Everett, up in Washington, apparently has both of those things, the homeless people and drug addicts. But also, a plague of rats and bunnies will be visited upon the city at different times of the day, according to one guy what that the lives hell? there. Rats I, and bunnies? Uh huh. And Eureka, while beautiful during the day, apparently turns into the Night of the Living Homeless episode of South Park after dark. It's just angry hobos aggressively shouting change at you until you throw it in their little cup or run away. But then as you turn around, there's like seven more homeless guys that materialized out of nothing, and they've all got change cups too, so now you got to bolt the other direction, and now you have no pocket change, and so now instead of taking the toll road, you have to go the long way around through the mountains. And then around the curve on the mountain, you see a homeless guy materializes out of nothing in front of you, so you swerve to avoid him, go over a cliff, and well, you survive the accident. However, you're a paraplegic now. Devastated by medical bills, you fall behind on mortgage payments and the bank forecloses on your house. A little cup materializes in your hand out of nothing, and it's empty. Thanks, Eureka. That's actually on their sign going into town. Just a short ride on the time machine today, loaded up. We're going back to 2011, but just a little bit of background before that. And again, buckle up. We're going to start our little journey today in the small town of Staten, Oregon, somewhere right in the middle of Portland and Springfield and just a little to the southeast of Salem. Let's meet the parents first today, David and Linda Peterson, P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N. David, or Red as he's called, why? don't know why, not the only weird name today either. He's an active duty Marine drill sergeant. And Linda has been legally documented as having multiple personality disorder, which I think now is dissociative personality disorder. Rose Peterson, one of Linda's alters, would say there's about 10 different people living in her head. David Peterson Jr. was born on June 18, 1980. He does also have an older sister, and her name is Holly. The two are born about 15 months apart, Holly being the older sibling, which I think that puts her sometime in March of 79. David Jr. also goes by Joey, by the way. Huh? Where did you get that? Well, his middle name is Joseph. It's actually the only nickname that fits today. Growing up, the two didn't have a very stable living arrangement. Red and Linda would split up pretty frequently divorced a couple of times, and the kids were just constantly bouncing from place to place. Sometimes staying with one of the rentals over in, or with their aunt over in Staten, sometimes at the neighbor's house, and on one occasion with some distant family all the way over in Missouri. It's just chaos on top of chaos on top of chaos on top of always wondering, am I going to bed in the same place I got out of bed today? Red also, pretty abusive. Very quick to anger. Fits of rage. I'm kind of seeing Red Foreman from that 70s show, and he actually kind of looks like him, but with white hair, so that might fit for you. Linda would lock herself in different rooms of the house. Bedrooms, bathrooms, closets, whichever's closest I get. Why did people do that? And why don't you hear about that anymore? Did, did we all just collectively realize how dumb that was and stop together? Did... 
closet pouting die off with the mullet? Oh, that's coming back. Yeah, I noticed that, and it still doesn't look good. Do you remember that kid at Walmart the other day? He looked like the guy from Eastbound and Down, but only three feet tall. Yeah, all he was missing was the sunglasses. In 1985, Red, Joey, Sister Holly, and all ten of their mother moved to Camp Pendleton in Oceanside. That's where Red was stationed. And his mom must have been fun, right? Reminds me of the old Christopher Titus bit. You never know who was coming to dinner. While they were living here, they got to enjoy some of the old outside type nature shit to do, going fishing for crawdads, swimming in the ocean, or just playing some good old football with Dad. Red liked the Vikings. One article I read said he had no real reason to like the Vikings, he just did. Well, yeah, his name is all E's and D's. Yeah, probably. Red seemed to only get more abusive while they were here, too. In between the very few family outings, there was a lot of punching holes in the walls, throwing shit, yelling, screaming, slamming doors. I wonder how many times this man threw his arms out to the side, palms out, eyes wide, mouth agape, in bewilderment, just going, Well? So after four years, Linda, or maybe Rose, or Carol, probably a Karen in there somewhere, finally all... She finally had all she could take of Red, and they divorced for good. Oh, so things are going to get better now? No. In fact, very much the opposite. It took until 93 for the divorce to finalize, so you can now add that into the mix of volatile home life. Fucking hell, man. Wait a minute. It gets worse. After the divorce, neither parent sought custody of either child, so they were sent away as wards of the state back to their aunt's house in Staten. What the shit? Can you imagine going through all that and then neither parent wants you? Seriously, these poor kids. I, I wouldn't wish that kind of upbringing on anybody. And I do feel bad for Joey. Up to this point. Right about now, he starts getting into some really bad shit. And I honestly can't blame the guy. The only thing he's known up to this point is instability and violence. Now that the family unit has crumbled to shit and the kids are living with their aunt, I don't know her name, it didn't mention anywhere, uh, Aunt Mom, for now, I guess? Whatever her name is, they're staying with her over in Staten. Linda moved back to Salem, and Red moved up to Everett, Washington, and eventually gets remarried to a woman named Leslie. You want to guess what her nickname is? Uh, is it Lulu? No, but you're close, actually. It's another name that doesn't fit. Dee Dee. God damn it. Joey would say later that while he was staying at Aunt Mom's, it was the happiest time of his life. Yeah, probably because nobody's screaming and punching the drywall. And his aunt would say that he was a bright and considerate child, really wanted to make people happy. Do you think that's because he's not used to seeing people happy? Mmm. I don't like that, but yeah, I think kinda, probably. His sister, Holly Perez, we'll call her Perez, she was extraordinarily happy there. It was the first time she'd been in a stable environment. While they were very happy there, they were also sharing the space with about eight other cousins, so it's pretty cramped, too. I can't imagine this house was very big in Oregon in early 90s, I think this is about now. Yeah, 93. Can't imagine that house was very big. Joey's going on about 12 or 13 right now, so I'm thinking probably all the puberty hormones are starting to go off in his brain too, and he wants some privacy. In a house with 10 people, though, privacy doesn't exist for 
anybody. Maybe the aunt, if she happens to have a room to herself, or if all the kids are at school at the same time, but I really doubt that. So when Joey's 13, he moves back in with Linda in Salem and starts attending the high school there, but very, very briefly. He starts having panic attacks, gets a Zoloft prescription, and the first day he had a chance to jerk it with some semblance of privacy, he decided to drop out of school and just do that instead. And then like eight more times that afternoon. Alright, he actually did drop out shortly after enrolling, but it was less to do with jerking it and more to do with um, criminal activities. June of 1996, that puts him at 16, he's arrested on accusation of third-degree robbery, but after being placed of an after being placed on an informal probation, charges are dropped and the case is closed. What are those charges, though? I've never heard of those before. Yeah, third-degree robbery? Is that like helping some other kids steal stuff? Like a middleman, maybe? Wouldn't that just be an accessory to robbery, though? Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. It is. Um, all right, I'll have to look that up later. Informal probation is probably just because he's a juvenile. Oh, so maybe someone just didn't want to do paperwork. Maybe. Maybe you don't fuck up for a few months and we'll just forget about the whole thing? Could be. In any case, except for that one because it's closed, Joey's just getting started with his little crime spree. And it's almost like from here the crime spree kind of doesn't really stop either. You'll, you'll see what I mean. His mom kicks him out of the house when he dropped out, so now he just runs around with all the kids on the street and then got a job bussing tables at the Old Country Buffet which he used to pay for rent. Where the hell is he staying? Uh, his manager's brother's house. From November of 96 to January of 97, so just three months, he robs two different coffee shops, a McDonald's, and a plaid pantry. I think that's a grocery store. It sounds like one. Robs them all at gunpoint. He pleads guilty to two counts of second-degree robbery in March of 97. Why is he doing this? Well, he needs money for dates. He's 16, man. He's trying to talk to girls, and you need money to do anything. But he has a job. Well, yeah, but you can't make 600 bucks a day bussing tables, especially in the 90s, or shit, you can't do that today. Or if you can, good for you, and are you hiring? Now at 16, Joey is sent to the McLaren Youth Correctional Facility in Woodburn, Oregon. Linda wrote a letter to the court, but Rose was the one that signed it. She blamed the police for not being harsher after the first arrest and pleaded with them to please make sure he takes his Zoloft. Seriously, if you're taking antidepressants and want to stop, fucking don't. Talk to your doctor first. That can really fuck you McLaren, up. McLaren, not a stellar place either. Luckily, Joey wouldn't be there for very long. Shortly before this, before he got there, and maybe up to and during... At least two women have been accused of sexually abusing three boys who were incarcerated there starting at around 1991, I believe. That sort of thing doesn't usually stop unless something stops it. So if these boys were still there while Joey was, then it's possible there was some other shady shit going on there too. And I don't know how that was resolved, so I'm going to say allegedly for all of that, just in case. And many times, the response to kids being put in juvenile detention centers falls far short of what you and I would call rehabilitation. It's more like putting a rabid honey badger in a cage with another rabid honey badger and then being shocked that they killed each other. 
What did you think was going to happen? Uh, you put a wild animal in a cage and it acted like a wild animal in a cage? Super weird. While Joey is in McLaren, he doesn't seem to make much of an effort to rehabilitate himself. He is so assaultive and violent, so much a danger to the staff and other kids. I'm not calling children inmates. They only put up with him until June 18th, three months later, on his 17th birthday, before they transfer him out of there and up to adult jail. Really sketchy three months for the staff there. And if that sounds like a weird thing to do, it's because it is. Even then, this was considered unusual to transfer a juvenile to adult prison. If they were to do it, this would be why, though. Joey is why. The first year goes fine, I guess. I say that because it's about a year after Joey gets there that he assaults another inmate, the first of about 70 or so violations. I don't quite know over how much time that occurs, but a vast majority of the next 15 years of Joey's life will be spent locked away from everybody for 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. So I'd imagine he gets a violation pretty frequently. And when he's not in solitary, he meets some really interesting people. Interesting in a bad way. A really bad way. In a gross way. He meets Robert Joseph Silveria Jr. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't that the, um, um, Mm-hmm, it sure is. If that name sounds familiar to you, Robert Joseph Silveria Jr. was the boxcar killer. He rode the rails, stabbing 34 train car riding hobos and homeless pi- Oh my god! What? What happened? What? What are we doing? It just dawned on me that that's probably what they were referencing in The Simpsons with that little jingle. Nothing beats the hobo life. Stabbing folks with my hobo knife. I'm not a stabbing hobo, I'm a singing hobo. He also meets another really interesting character that we need to introduce. A Corey Eugene Jeffrey Wyatt. But he also goes by Agnar the Mighty, we'll get to that later, and I'm absolutely not calling him that. I will not oblige a fucking Nazi! Surprise, by the way, Corey is super into the white supremacist bullshit system of deductive thinking, and it doesn't take Joey very long to figure out he's also into that stupid shit. If you didn't listen to me earlier when I said buckle up, do it now. Corey and Joey are about the same age, in prison for similar offenses. Corey's in for either a robbery charge in 2003 or assaulting a police officer in 2005. Not clear when they actually met inside. They also shared their beliefs in white power together, along with Alan Watkins and Orin Williams, O-R-I-N, there's another weird name. They created the Aryan Soldiers Prison Gang, and they will 100% stab you. Not just because it's a prison gang and you'd expect them to do that, but because that was part of their initiation procedure for joining the gang. You gotta go stab that dude in the balls. Minimum. I don't know if it's to the death or just like a little pokey poke. Probably the worse the better though, if I had to guess. So over the next 15 years, Joey Peterson would slowly acquire more and more tattoos all of which are either an appropriated Nordic symbol, a swastika, or, you know what, fuck it, why not a portrait of Hitler on your chest? He did wh what the fuck? Actual Hitler in permanent ink on your body until you die. What a stupid thing to do. He also has the letters SWP tattooed on his throat, 
which of course stands for supreme white power. And is also a stupid thing to do. And I don't know if I didn't know this before or if I just forgot about it, but the strong ties to Nordic mythology has been a rather large facet of the neo-Nazi movement since, since and because of the regular Nazis, and probably before that. Oh, he's making that face again, you guys. You could sort of twist it around in such a way that you could even kind of blame the Romans for the Nazis, thanks in part to Tacitus describing the Germanic people as a pure, uncorrupted race, and the romanticized imagery of Viking culture, white men and women with fair complexions and hair, and demonstrations of raw masculinity, as 4chan says, as far as I know. I don't know, I didn't go there. I saw this in an article along with the appropriation of various Nordic symbols, such as the Valnot and the swastika, also loosely based on an old Nordic symbol. That really speaks to small-minded people, apparently. Thanks, Nero. And it's also not even true. Skeletal remains have proven that the Vikings went pretty much everywhere, had relations with everybody, some peaceful, others not, but racial purity was not an especially prevailing trait of Viking culture. Also important to point out, not every neo-pagan movement that adapts Norse mythology adheres to the white supremacist beliefs, but the ones that do aren't doing any favors to those who are just looking for something to believe in. Mama Linda sent Joey a letter in prison in 2007. Remember this. Hang on to this. Because it's right here that Corey and Joey also begin to make plans for a white power movement when they get out of prison. Meanwhile... While those two dipshits are concocting the most asinine plan I've heard of all year, we need to introduce just one more character into the story. You know, player three, as I like to say. Her name is Holly Ann Grigsby. There's two Hollies. That's why the other one is Perez. This one will remain Holly. She's the youngest of three, just a couple years older than me, actually. She also had a shitty childhood. Started getting into skinhead stuff around 13, and then that evolved, or devolved, whichever one fits, into drug abuse and criminal activity pretty quickly. She liked to do lots of heroin and meth, rob people, steal their identities. In 2006, she went to prison for it for two years. Then she gets out. While she's on parole, she gets married, gets arrested again for ID theft, serves two more years, gets out on probation, and somewhere in that mix, she has gives birth to a son while in prison. Like many afflicted by drug addiction and substance abuse, she would get clean while in jail and then start using again as soon as she was released. And that will bring us to May of 2011, when Joey is released from prison on parole. He'd spent so much time in solitary that he'd earned 122 days of time served for good behavior, and he also got his good enough, his GED. Joey and Holly meet through a couple of ex-convict friends while Joey's looking for a job, and she is just instantly infatuated and obsessed with this guy, Joey. Doesn't take long for her to leave her husband and team up with Joey, since, you know, they think the same. And if you don't have a relationship right now and you want one, you've got to try just a little bit harder, because these two are a perfect example of there's somebody for everybody. Even skinheads. <laughs> Even they can fall in love. <sighs> That's a weird thought. These two share so much in common with each other, and most, if not all of it, is because of their ignorant-ass beliefs. Joey and Holly together are a dangerous combination of violent ideologies and, and a willingness to follow through. That's the scary part. Alright, this might sound a little bit weird to hear it out loud, but I really wish this was just a regular murder plot. 
I mean, murder plans are already gross enough, but you don't need to also have it be racially motivated. Obviously, don't do this, but <laughs> if you have to kill someone, try harder than, well, they're a different color than me and I don't like it. There's a lot more reasons to kill that could potentially benefit you in some way. Usually money, or love, an inheritance, perhaps. They look different is the laziest murder excuse I've ever fucking heard of. Try better than that, but don't, no, don't murder people. Super unnecessary. Obviously a joke. Now, normally, I love a bad plan. And this is a horrible plan. I like picking apart the logic of a bad plan, but this one is just... I'm not even sure what to say about it. What I'm not going to say about it, however, is what Joey and Holly say it was. I don't want to give any amount of volume to a voice that has nothing but hateful things to say, especially when it's something like this. And at least if I put it in my own words, we'll know how catshit ridiculous it is and we can make fun of them for being idiots. The plan is, essentially, we's gonna drive up and down the I-5 and kill all the top Jews along the West Coast to embolden white supremacist followers across the nation. What? What is to be gained from that plan? I don't think there is a gain, even for them on a personal level. I don't exactly know how they intend to benefit from this at all. They weren't being paid. It sounds like they don't expect anything in return. I honestly think they just wanted an excuse to justify violence against an ill-perceived wrongdoing toward them. So they're all hanging out, camping on the 4th of July weekend, 2011. Joey, Holly, also Corey is there. They're camping just before they decide to go out on their little mission. Holly and Joey discuss the details of the plan with Corey and his wife Kimberly. She's also there. Along with another guy named Bryce. He doesn't do anything, but he is there taking up space. And they're all super excited about this plan, too. Like third graders when you tell them they're going to have a pizza party on Friday. So Kim, being the only non-felon on this camping trip, buys a high-point 9mm Luger to give to Corey so Corey can give it to Joey. Oh, I'm sorry. Did, did I say Corey? I meant to say Agnar the Mighty. Get the fuck out of here, no. The reason Corey goes by Agnar the Mighty is because he loves Frozen. No, because while Joey and Corey were in prison together, Corey began training Joey in MMA and Agnar is his UFC nickname. He has a pro record. Oh my god, are you fucking kidding me? Real quick though, why are so many people with Nazi tattoos so eager to fight and take their shirts off in front of crowds? Corey says, you know what? Before you go on your little trip, why don't you join me for a weekend in Reno for a UFC match to go fight in? Oh my god. One night only, September 16th, 2011. Ultimate Reno Combat 2. Unequal. Corey fights against Albert Townsend. Wins in the first round. Set for three. He wins with an armbar. His record after the fight is three wins, zero losses, zero draws. I thought I saw somewhere his record was 13-2-0, but I think that must have been somebody else on the card that night. Townsend, he walks away after the fight with a record of zero wins, six losses, zero draws. Why keep fighting? Six times the charm? No, it's not. Just go home, dude. Dave Joey Peterson's record is 0-3-0. He lost to a Dustin Phelps that weekend. Oh, maybe he's the guy with the good record. Maybe it was him. 
I don't remember where I found that, though, so I'm not looking that up again. But that's what there was to do that weekend, either fighting an MMA match or accompany Peterson on a tri-state killing spree. Now that we're done with the octagon, Holly and Joey decide to go on up to Everett, Washington to visit Red and Dee Dee for a few months. How are they going to get there? Neither of them have a car, do they? No, they do not. Oh, don't tell me. That's the only way to get there. They take a Greyhound bus from Springfield all the way to Everett. So long, Groundskeeper Willie. So long, Simpsons. All right, I think I'm done with Simpsons stuff now. This is a two-day trip. Two days on a bus sounds so gross. They also probably drive by many of the places the I-5 killer Randall Woodfield struck. By the way, if you didn't know, he was drafted by the Packers in 1974 for a little bit. I don't think these two knew about that, though. I don't think they know much beyond what their hands look like. But they eventually get there. They got a few days to get through before the, before the plan can take place. So what do you got to do? What's there to do in Everett? You could go check out the Flying Heritage and Combat Armor Museum and look at old planes and flying machines. Or you could go to one of the other flying museums and look at old planes and flying machines. Or either that, or go outside and look at nature. There's not a lot to do in this town. I do kind of want to go to that museum, though. That would be cool for a little bit. I don't know how long I'd be interested in it, though. Neat, a plane. Neat, another plane. Now, that'd get boring real quick. They don't do any of that, though. They instead choose to go to the shooting range and visit with different family members while they're there. All right. Last day of the trip, September 26, 2011. Remember that letter one of David's moms sent him back in prison in 07? In that letter, she alleges that at some point during their childhood, Red sexually molested his sister, Perez, Holly Perez, and this seems to have been the basis for his plan outside of prison. He read the letter from mom four years ago and it made him so angry that he formulated a plan to start a revolution for white supremacist followers all over the country, starting with my parents and on to all the head Jews in Sacramento. All right, get your laughs in now and is your seatbelt on? Put it on. In a remote area of Everett, Washington, Joey Peterson and Holly Grigsby had lured Old Red out to check out some future campsites and then supposedly off to the bus station right after that so they could get back to wherever they were going. They're driving around in Red's black Jeep Patriot. Red's driving. Got Holly in the passenger seat and Joey sitting directly behind Red. While they're driving, cars moving, Joey pulls out the 9mm high point Luger he'd gotten from Corey a few months earlier and shoots Red in the back of the head. Holy shit, what? Holly immediately jumps over, somehow pulls his body out of the way enough to slip in and gain control of the vehicle without crashing. What the fuck? Hold on. It's not over. He's still alive. What? They drove around like that for a half an hour while Red was slowly dying and moaning with Holly sitting on top of him. do after he dies where are they going next after he dies they pull over move his body to the back seat cover him up with clothes and now it's time to go shopping for new clothes you have got to be kidding me they've got to be just covered in blood both of them holly's tweaked out bony ass sitting on his corpse and joey right behind him with a nine millimeter shot to the head inside a moving jeep 
There's gonna be blood everywhere. Wait, where'd they get the money? Oh, they stole Red's credit cards. And now they've got some fresh new threads. Probably like, I bet they went to a Goodwill and got like a way too big gray Mickey Mouse shirt. No one in there cares if you're covered in blood. So now it's time to go pay old Leslie a visit, or Dee Dee, as she's called. Well, wait a minute, what does she have to do with this? Well, Leslie knew about what Red had done. Perez would later confirm that, yeah, he did molest her. But she chose to do... No Leslie chose to do nothing about it, so she's a threat to their way of life and a potential witness. Wait, but she didn't see anything. Here's another thing I didn't know. Um, apparently it's a huge thing in neo-Nazi culture. No, not culture. That's not culture. Although it is... You know what? It's kind of more like a cult if you think about it long enough, though. Indoctrination, violent tendencies, insane rules and laws with flawed logic that basically enables you to do whatever you think is right as long as my god said so or whatever bullshit. I don't know what they preach and I don't want to know. My point is, men aren't supposed to harm women ever, so he has Holly kill Leslie instead. Holly would later admit to slashing Leslie's throat with two knives. You, listening right now. You. Not if you're driving, though. You can just pretend, Blue Rav 4. Hold out your hand in front of you. Now, pretend you're holding a knife. Or if you have a knife, grab it. Look at your hand right now. See how crazy that feels? How do you look right now? Now grab a second knife. Two knives is so much more crazy than one knife, and these two were dull as fuck, which is why she had to use two. It was a K-Bar and a Kershaw knife, if anyone cares. Joey also drugged the dogs while she was doing this. But they just went to sleep for a little while. They, just a little pup-pup snooze. Dogs are fine. No dead dogs in this one, thank God. Good lord, Matt. What the fuck is happening in Washington? Dude, I have no idea. I can't believe I'd never heard of this before this week. Holly does that, and once the deed is done, they just leave her on the bed, cover her with a blanket, and bunch up a few pillows around her head to stop the pool from... To stop the blood from pooling. To stop the pool from blooding. God damn it. <laughs> they steal a bunch of weapons from Red's collection and also Dee Dee's credit cards as well. Okay, well, now what? What's, what's the dismount? Oh, they're not done. Oh, of course they're not. They wait until nightfall, grab the Jeep, and drive all the way out to Oregon to meet up with Corey about the plan. And the reason they waited for nightfall to make a five and a half hour road trip to see Corey was because they needed help getting rid of the body, which was still in the car when they got to Corey's. Oh my god, six hours of corpse? I'm amazed they didn't get pulled over on the way there. No way are these two driving calmly after they just murdered two people for the laziest reason ever, in the most cowardly way ever. A, a lazy Nazi coward murderer in Oregon. That's the name of this episode. It has to be. Holy shit. So, they get to Corey's. And they all head out to a secluded area of Lebanon, Oregon. There's a Lebanon, Oregon? Really? They move Joey and Holly's stuff into Corey's car and then roll the Jeep off an embankment because no one will ever find that. Except for they left his wife at home in bed with a slit throat. Somebody's going to come looking for her sooner or later. And they're dumb, so they probably didn't think of that either. The Wyatts tell the pair they can stay with them for one night and then you got to go. The next day, they tell the Wyatts what actually happened, and then they drive Joey and Holly to the coast somewhere near Don David Park in Newport and set up camp for about three days, discussing what to do. Just set up camp outside. We're sleeping right here. I got a tent. I guess he got a tent from Corey and some other 
survivalist stuff. Corey's a super survivalist guy. We'll talk about him later on. He probably got a bunch of outdoor stuff from him. And they decide the best thing to do, obviously, we got to carjack somebody. Oh, no, you don't. So, on October 1st, they get out on the road and start a hitchhiking. Stupid thumbs out instead of up their asses in a tent. And a driver pulls over after they wave him down, a Cody Myers, a 19-year-old from Lafayette, I think Louisiana, not Indiana, as he's attending the Newport Jazz Festival, featuring such acts as Lettuce and Corey Wong, whom isn't Asian and has flaming red hair. I'm not paying any amount of money to see Lettuce play a saxophone. Unless it's a saxophone made out of lettuce and you're using it to play Pantera. With a cabbage from here. So Holly flags down Cody and convinces him to give them a ride. While she's getting in, Joey swoops around from the side, probably hidden behind some bushes or something. He slides into the back seat, pulls the gun on Cody, and then Joey orders him to drive to the campsite they were just at, which is the opposite direction of where they wanted to go, you idiots. And then they also tell him they're going to steal his car. I'm not sure what literature Joey had been reading to think Myers is a Jewish name, but Apparently, that's the reason they killed him instead of just stealing the car. They get back to the campsite, get out of the car, and Cody is shot several times. Twice in the chest, once in the back, and once in the head. And this is fucking disgusting behavior right here, heads up. They take his body to a secluded area, which tells me this is not a secluded campsite in the first place, idiots and they hide his body in the woods. They cover him up with a tarp, a sleeping bag, some bags of garbage, and this this is to me the worst of it. They also put the wipes that they used to get his blood off of them from when they shot him for no goddamn reason like 20 minutes ago. I, d I don't even know what to do with that. I have no words. Holy shit. The disrespect. To a complete stranger who just wanted to hear some good music. I don't know, this one really bothers me, but I may have found an outlet that I'll tell you about at the end. So they steal Cody's car and start heading south to Sacramento. I'm getting a lot of this information from court documents. Also, it doesn't mention what kind of car Cody was driving. I wish it did. I'm picturing like a little silver Ford Taurus, maybe. I don't know. Seems like kind of car that a 19-year-old would drive. October 4th, three days later... Joey and Holly arrive in Eureka, California, and wind up at a Winco grocery store. Now, I've never worked at a Winco, but I did work at Kroger for a long time. Customers are the same no matter where you go, it seems. One lady that shops at that particular Winco left a review that said, Winco brand skinless chicken go bad faster than normal. One star. Keep in mind, we're in Eureka, so there's tons of drug use going on. This lady probably, as soon as she got home, shot up some heroin or some meth, left her groceries on the counter all night, and then forgot about them. And then when she woke up, they smelled bad and complained that they went wrong because that's obviously the grocery store's fault. At my store, we used to have gypsies that would come in all the time and return half-eaten cakes and melted ice cream saying, we didn't like it. You ate half of it. What are you talking about? And then another guy would always track me down with to help him find his stupid bean and bacon soup because he couldn't read. I don't miss working there at all. All right, we'll get back to Winco. I just, uh, I needed a break after all that for just a second. Seriously, how do they have the energy to do all of it? I haven't found documentation of this, but probably meth. 
keep it going, usually. Then it dawns on them. Uh, we just drove a car that we murdered a kid for in broad daylight, drove it across state lines on a major highway with many people driving on it. We might need to switch vehicles. Oh, no, not again. Another one? Yeah, this one's not any better. Maybe the worst one. This also is why don't talk to people in parking lots. It could very easily be this. They approach people in the parking lot, leaving the grocery store, making up some sob story about needing a ride. My grandmother is really sick, but our car broke down and we don't have any money to get it fixed. If you could just take us to insert lie here. Nope. We'll send you 40 bucks from gas money for driving us. Don't give Next shit. time somebody approaches you in a parking lot with anything, no one in a parking lot has anything important to say to you ever. Just yell no in their face and keep walking. Don't care. Goodbye. Don't even pay them any attention. Nope. 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 Unfortunately, Reginald Allen Clark, a 53-year-old black man, listened to Grigsby and agreed to give the two a ride. They drove up the highway for a few miles until Joey told Clark to pull over so he could get out and go pee. Upon returning to the vehicle, Peterson pulls out the gun, orders Clark to move over to the passenger seat, which he does, and Grigsby hops into the driver's seat. She starts driving, and then another few miles up the road, Joey pulls out the gun and shoots Reginald once in the back of the head, killing him. God damn it, man. Then they get back to the Winco to get their stuff and realize, oh shit, this guy had no tags on his car. It's unregistered. You know what? Just to be safe, let's just go get back in Cody's car and keep on driving. It'll be a lot less conspicuous that way. So they park Reggie's truck in an alleyway, cover up his body with... I don't know what, probably the big Mickey Mouse shirt, and then leave his truck in an alleyway and then go back to the Winco to get Cody's car. And here's another thing that bothers me about this whole thing. I mean, besides killing a 19-year-old music lover that, because you thought he was Jewish and a black guy that you killed just because he was a black guy, that's horrible any way you look at it, on top of his parents, but all of these murders are just so completely unnecessary, as most are, Apart from, I'd say, serial killers murdering other serial killers in prison, murder very unnecessary. Society would benefit greatly from no murder, actually. And why is he doing this? To help make a better world for his people by making a huge statement and getting everyone's attention? Look at me, everyone! I'm helping! I'm doing this for you! Look at all the good I'm doing! Follow me! If you want to be a good person and help people around you, just go help them. Not like this guy. What he does is the opposite of what I want you to do. But you don't need recognition for something you should be doing anyway, which is staying kind and being helpful whenever possible. And, you know, probably keep an eye on the person that wants you to know how good of a person they are. Hey, these two have been really busy driving around murdering people. How has nobody seen them doing any of this? Oh, shitloads of people have seen them. And the very next day, actually, California Highway Patrol arrested them after recognizing the description of the stolen vehicle. Also, because by now, Perez has discovered her mother's body. I misplaced the quote, but she said as soon as she entered the house, she saw the dogs cowering in the kitchen, and it smelled horrible, so she knew instantly something had happened. Police found multiple guns in the car, including the one used to kill Red and Dee Dee. Why would you keep the murder weapons, you dumb shits? Because dumb shit. Her too, though. She had a twenty-two magazine... 22 caliber magazine loaded with five rounds in her pocket, the Kershaw in her back pocket, and the K-bar was in the trunk. They also found a press statement in Joey's wallet that he was going to give somewhere, 
along with the names and addresses of several large Jewish organizations in Portland. I will not be reading his press statement. I had to dig to find this ignorant racist bullshit. I'm not putting his stupid words out there. Fuck him and her. She's equally terrible. All right, though. Okay, we're finally done with the murder part. No more deaths today. I've had enough. Over the course of the next few days, investigators discover all the bodies. They find Red's body in the Jeep 10 feet over the embankment. They find Dee Dee on her bed, Cody in the woods under trash bags and baby wipes, and they find Reggie in an alleyway covered in a tarp or maybe Mickey Mouse t-shirt. Ballistics from all the murder tools that they kept with them because they're idiots check out and places each of them directly at each crime scene. Yeah, they super did it. I don't think that was much of an issue. The next three years, though, there was quite a bit of legal trouble leading up to sentencing. This ends up being a federal case, and they both plead guilty, so there's not a trial, but they do have to go through procedures and logging evidence and psyche valves and all that stuff. I mean, these two just did some insane stuff in multiple states. I'd imagine they kind of have to have a psych eval. And there's so much information about mishandled evidence here, too. Detective Dave Steele, I think he was the lead investigator on the case, or maybe just worked on it. He seems to have had some trouble keeping up with doing his job and properly logging evidence and following the chain of custody. Because for the next three years, there would be a huge investigation into a potential Sixth Amendment bad faith claim against the state. He didn't submit a letter or a box of evidence that may have contained confidential jailhouse phone calls to their attorney or some shit like that. I don't know. It was really boring, and it doesn't matter anyway. So Steele is locked away in a separate legal battle with federal judge Anser Haggerty and assistant U.S. attorneys Jane Shoemaker and Hannah Horsley, and also Peterson's counsel Richard Wolf and Scott Asfog until he was put on administrative league and replaced by FBI Special Agent Frank Heckendorn. What is with these names? And then that whole thing gets dropped anyway because Joey makes a plea to save Corey and his wife Kim from extra jail time since, you know, they're accomplices. One journalist reached out to Joey during this time, and he replied back to her with, Let me jump right into it, young lady. I represent everything you have been taught to loathe. I kill people. Given the opportunity at a second chance out in society, I would change only my tactics. Ew. So it's sentencing time, finally. We'll do Holly first. She sort of apologizes to the family, but not really. She said she didn't want to use her upbringing and history of drug abuse and rough childhood as an excuse, and just so we can all see what particular flavor of crazy Holly and Joey are, here's what she said about what happened. Quote, my actions have further damaged the reputation of a movement misunderstood. I deeply regret this. Although I had nothing but the best of intentions, the bridge to Valhalla is not paved with good intentions, but with one's actions and heart. There's quite a lot to unpack there. She's more upset that she hurt the movement. She thinks that the people that she wants to associate with are going to not want to associate with her now or something. I, I don't know what she even really means by that. That doesn't make any sense. I've been reading this all week and I haven't figured it out. What the fuck is she talking about? But this is amazing, this next part right here. Lori Nimitz, Dee Dee's daughter, she says, she says, quote, How dare you go into my mother's home where she welcomed you as family? I hugged you for God's sakes. Nimitz said, 
The torturous slaying of her mother with the dull knives was, quote, beyond heinous and beyond cruel. I cannot imagine a person that would do that to an innocent woman who welcomes you as family. Catherine Hicks, a spokeswoman for another daughter, told Grigsby that she was a, quote, wicked, heartless viper. You slithered into town with only one thing in mind, murder. I like that, a wicked, heartless viper. How accurate is that? Judge Haggerty's had enough, and he says, all right, this is long, but it's awesome, so bear with me. Fueled by hatred and her long-standing white supremacist beliefs, Miss Grigsby participated in a shockingly serious and destructive scheme that ultimately resulted in the murders of four innocent people in the course of just ten days, and well might have resulted in countless other murders if the defendants had not been apprehended before reaching Sacramento, where they planned a mass killing spree. These murders have caused great anguish for all the victims' families. Miss Grigsby played a critical role in the scheme and participated in the planning and execution of the crimes as well as the attempted destruction of evidence. She did not get caught up in this revolution unwittingly or under duress. She is unflinching in her beliefs, which according to jail correspondence, she continues to hold and espouse to this day and has not expressed remorse for all of the destruction she has caused. She deserves a severe punishment that is commensurate with the seriousness of these crimes and needs to be incapacitated in order to protect others who could be the objects of her intolerance and dangerousness. A severe penalty will also hopefully send the message to others that they may not act violently and harm others in the name of their beliefs. A long sentence cannot undo the damage, but will bring some sense of justice to the victims and society for these horrific crimes. Based on the above, the government urges the court to accept the plea agreement and sentence the defendant to life in prison without the possibility of release. Get the fuck out of my court. All right, full disclosure, I don't know if that was spoken or just written in the court document I read, but it does put a little neat, neat little bow on everything, and I love a good federal fuck you. Holly can go to jail forever now. Life in prison, no parole. Get fucked, you racist bitch. Moving right along, let's get on to Joey. He pleads guilty, yeah, I totally did it, and he is sentenced to two life sentences for the murder of his parents, and later on, he's charged with two more life sentences for the carjacking, so I think he's serving four life sentences. Hooray! Very quickly, Corey Wyatt also goes to trial for his role in all this. He was sentenced by U.S. District Judge Gar King. Gar! What is happening with these names? No fucking wonder Red liked the Vikings, that's who lives here. Corey gets seven years and five months, and I don't know what happened to Kim. I don't know if she served any jail time or what. and didn't, I couldn't find that anywhere. David Joey Peterson and Holly Ann Grigsby, two disgusting excuses of human beings, two really good examples of a quote that I saw from Peterson's parole officer. I love this. He says, you can't make cupcakes out of shit. <laughs> I really wish that, that could be the name of this episode, but I don't think they'll let me say that. His P.O.'s hilarious, and he's absolutely right, too. And that definitely still applies to Corey Wyatt when he's out of jail. He's out of jail now. I think he's vowed to change his white supremacist beliefs and reform himself. Except now he's super deep into the whole QAnon thing and has been documented many times as a, quote, immediate and dangerous threat 
to whichever community he's living in. There's a whole blog post about this guy somewhere that I've found. I don't know how I found. I was up until 1 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, 12.30 last night, and I worked on this for like eight hours straight after I got off of an opening shift. So you, you tend to just find stuff when you follow the rabbit holes, and I'm usually so fucking stoned by the end of this, I don't remember how the rabbit hole even got started, so I'm thinking I might be lucky to have found a lot of this stuff that I did find today. But there you have it, everybody. That might be the craziest thing I've found so far. That's even crazier than the shit I did in Montgomery, Texas a few weeks ago. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that one right after this. You'll also get to hear me break a record for the most F-bombs I've dropped in under an hour. Wait a minute, don't go yet. One very important part of the rabbit hole I went down this week I wanted to make sure to remember to tell you all about is a really awesome charity that I found. I'm not sure if it's still active. I haven't had time to look it up yet, but after all of this settled down, the good people of Lafayette set up a program for underprivileged youths who had a passion for music they called the Cody Myers Music Outreach Program. They would provide moral and musical guidance to anyone who wants to learn an instrument, and they even provided the instruments. The only thing is that the kids have to keep their grades up and not get in trouble at school, and they can keep the instruments for as long as they want. All right, if you, if you are one of those people, if you just have to prove to everyone how good of a person you are, do this. Find a charity you like, donate to it, and then tell people about it. How about that? Spreading the word for a good cause is a good thing, right? That's okay for us to do, yeah? Thank you so, so much for listening to us today. I really hope you all liked that. If you laughed, or if you learned something new, or if you just like how I tell stories, I super appreciate you, and I, that you took me along with part of your day. It, it blows me away that anybody listens to me at all. Thank you so much. And if you want to prove to me that you're a good person, get on Apple Podcasts and review the show. The five-star thing really does help a lot with discoverability, and I want to make more people laugh, so please do that for me if you can. It's free. Come on. What's 30 more seconds of your day? Next week, I have another equally insane story to tell you about. Is a drug smuggler for one of the cartels. Another in a long line of dangerous and scary people that we talk about on this show. And this story also involves another wood chipper. But that's actually one of the less gross murders in that one, so... Bring an extra seatbelt with you next week, folks. So thank you so much, everyone. We're out of here. My eyes hurt. I'm hungry, and... We'll see you all next Sunday. Stay kind. Stay kind.